If you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. When I left five months ago, it doesn't really feel like we left. I mean, it does, but it's strange being back in a good way. It feels like there wasn't a gap in between. When we left, we were studying through the book of Psalms. And the evening services here meant that I kept going through those Psalms. I, I really enjoyed some of the things that we were looking at together. Um, and so... I wanted to look through this chapter together with us. Psalm 22. Let's read the word of the Lord. For the director of music, to the tune of the doe of the morning, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. And you, our fathers, put their trust. And they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were saved. And you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. There's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey. Open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All of the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you so much that we are able to to be together, to examine your word, to study it. God, I pray that you would get me out of the way. Make sense of my bumblings. God, I have prayed for this church these past five months. 
And I know this church has prayed for us. And we thank you that geography, miles and miles, cannot separate us because of the bond we have in you. Father, I thank you that you've been with them. And I thank you that you've been with us. God, I pray as we examine this text that we would come to understand the true hope that we have in the resurrection because of the depths of despair, whether it's our own life or whether we're looking to the death of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would truly understand hope and joy. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to tell you a couple stories that I've heard these past five months. These are true stories. I'm going to change the names because it's being recorded and just in case it goes back. Um, these are real people. Sometimes we hear about stories and it feels like it's you know millions of miles away and it doesn't actually it didn't actually occur. Uh, there's a man named John. We're just going to call him John for the sake of it. Uh, one day he was with his father. His father is a pastor. They were on their motorcycle. They were going up uh, up a road. Uh, suddenly there was a roadblock. Right now in Colombia and for the past. Uh, over 65 years, there's been a civil war. And so there's armed groups, essentially organized crime, uh, that essentially are the government in these rural areas uh, because they're the strongest. They have the biggest guns. And so as this young man and his father were going up, there was a roadblock and they made them get off. And the commander, who just happened uh, to be a woman, uh, she told them they had to pay a fine to come through, the equivalent of about $2,000. This man didn't have $2,000. He said, I'm not going to pay it. I don't have it. She said, go back and tell your church to give it to us. I'm not going to do that. The purpose of the offerings of the church are not to fund you, but for the church, for the spreading of the gospel. That's why we exist. They got mad, they got madder and madder, and finally said, fine, just go, just go. The whole time this young man was, you know, shaking because his dad was, you know, speaking boldly to these men and this woman. About three months later, this young man went back to the seminary where I teach, and he was on the phone with his dad, and they were talking about other things, and suddenly there was gunshots outside, and his dad said, hold on, wait, i got to go to bed, and he hangs up. Of course, as you can imagine, the young man gets really, really afraid. Later, his dad calls and says, I'm okay, I'm okay, no big deal. Later on, the young man finds out this same group had come to the house, put a gun to his mom's head. His mom. Hopefully it was your mom. Put his dad in the hospital beat him, telling him he had to pay. The pastor said, no, I won't do it. Later on, this young man from the seminary, hundreds of miles from where his parents was, was walking from class back to the house, and he just had to cross a little road. He walks across, he's standing at the gate. Three thugs come up, push him against the gate, put a gun to his head, tell him, you tell your dad to pay, or you will die. We're watching you. He just got married. We're watching your wife. This young man told me this story. He said, and I had the option of, of running away to Spain. When I told my dad, and I, I thought about my dad's ministry, he's been threatened his whole life, and he stayed for the sake of the gospel. And I could go to Spain and be safe. But in the same way my dad said, I need to stay, because this message needs to be heard. But what hope does this young man have? I remember as a kid... Uh, there was one time that my dad was accused of several things, and so he was kidnapped for three days. That's what I don't tell very often. In the country, there's a lot of corruption. Uh, a, a lot of foreign aid just came to build this massive highway that was supposed to uh, help protect the, Colombian, the Columbia. 
uh, and, and a lot of other countries gave millions of dollars and half of it just disappeared. Imagine the trust that people have in their government when that kind of money just poof, goes away. You can't trust the government, you can't trust the armed groups, you can't trust the roads, you can't trust anything. There's another pastor that uh, he was telling a story about how uh, he, uh, about 15 years ago, he felt in his heart that he needed to encourage his congregation to quit planting cocaine and heroin. <laughs> Love for your fellow man. The problem is if they quit uh, planting these crops, uh, the armed groups will get angry at them. Not only will they get angry at them, they'll lose about, instead of they'll, they'll, they'll make about a tenth of what they would have made otherwise. And whenever you switch crops, so for example, if you switch from doing cocaine to coffee, it takes coffee about three years to be able to produce. So that means for three years, they're going to have no income. So how do you as a pastor tell your congregation, for love of your fellow man who's thousands of miles away, and because it's illegal, you should not plant this crop? So we started praying. And for ten years, this man came to his church at five in the morning, prayed for two hours praying that God would give them some kind of alternative, some kind of answer. Ten years of praying. What do you do in those situations of despair? And I say those, those feel like a million miles away because that's not our situation here, but many of us feel like we're sometimes in those same situations where you're just down in that hole so deep you cannot get out. But here's the reality. You cannot understand joy until you've experienced grief. Let me say that again. You cannot understand joy until you've experienced grief. I would also say that you cannot understand the hope of the resurrection until you've understood despair and experienced it. Because of the resurrections, Christians can, Christians can find hope amidst despair. And for the first 21 verses, I'd encourage you, if you don't have your Bibles open, keep them open so that you can make sense of my mumblings. Uh, the first 21 verses... It, the way David describes it, he is in the worst, he's in the pits, he's in the worst place in the world. But he alternates between speaking with joy and remembering his situation. Oh, this is awful, God. How can, how can this be? Why aren't you listening to my prayer? And then he says, he remembers who God is, and we're going to see sort of that ping pong effect. That he, he remembers who God is, but his situation just keeps smacking him over the side of the head. And what's amazing is, he's not the only one who prayed this prayer. A lot of times when we sing the psalms, we think they're full of joy and happiness, and they are. But 40% of the psalms are laments. My brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not easy. It's hard. For generations, it's been hard. But what do we do in that hardship? We don't know. A lot of psalms tell us the situation, what was happening uh, when David wrote this. This one, we just know it's a psalm of David. We don't know what happened there are several times that he was completely surrounded. He, he, he despaired of, of life. He thought he was going to die. And so it may be a reference to 1 Samuel 18 or 1 Samuel 22. We don't know. We really don't know. But we know that he, was, he felt like death would be better than this life. He'd gotten to that point. And yet, something was different. Because in the midst of that situation, he recognizes God was with him. So look in your Bibles at the first few verses. Look at verses 1 and 2. He, he gives a complaint first. and It's a distant God. He said, God is far away. He is far off. He does not answer. That familiar phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But note, he says, my God. There's something personal there. That pronoun carries so much weight. When we say our 
Father, it's the hour word is so heavy. Here, my God, he recognizes you. I belong to you. There's something there. He uses the word, you've abandoned me. But if, if, if he feels abandoned, then there's something about there was a previous communion there. At some point, he didn't feel alone. He says, you do not respond. It suggests that the Lord hears prayer, as it says in Psalm 65, 2 and Psalm 28, 1 through 3. You see, I truly believe that God wants to hear our honest prayers. He doesn't just want to hear those prayers when we say the things that we should. He wants to hear how we really feel, who we really, really are. Because when we pray those prayers, He transforms us. He changes us. It's not, it's okay for David to pray, I feel alone. But what does he say? Even though he feels alone in verses 1 and 2, what does verse 3 say? But God is holy. Wait, wait, I thought he was just talking about, you know, feeling alone in despair. He looks to who God is. And if you think about the Old Testament temple, God was comp- kept completely separate from his people. And, but in the New Testament, it talks about how the church is the temple of God. And when we think about the, the, the idea of the phrase, God with us, Emmanuel, we can say that God is holy. God, what, what does it say there in verse 3? You are in the praises of the people, is what it says in the Hebrew. He is here with us. When we sing, when we pray, when we come together, He's promised to be with us. So even though the situation seems awful, when we sing together, when we pray together, we remember God is with us. He doesn't just make the problems go away, poof, but He's promised to be there with us through them. Look at verses 4 and 5. He talks about the faith of our fathers and God's response. And I thought this was, this was especially fitting uh, with a baptism today. I mean, if you think about it, why do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Why are you here in church today? We could say it's because of uh, logical reasoning, and we could say it's through history, and, and there's good defenses for Christianity. Don't get me wrong. But most of us, it's because a father, a mother, a grandfather, an aunt, somebody else did discipleship with us. They taught us. They showed us. They showed us what the faith was. They stood next to us in a really difficult time. They showed us the truths of the gospel, the phase of our fathers. Right here, David recognizes, you were with him. You were with my dad. You were with my fathers and my grandfathers. You were with them. You answered their prayers when they cried. Therefore, I have hope that you will hear me. Why? You were with them and you promised to be with me. Even though I feel alone. Verses 6 through 8 goes back to to this complaint. He he shows that he's the scorn of men. (laughs) He calls himself a worm. It says that he's scorned and despised, mocked and pitied. The situation is awful, but it gets even worse. You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we think about David and we think the guy playing the harp, killing Goliath. He was also a man who slept with another man's wife, then killed the man, and then got other people involved and pretended like it was okay and thought he got away with it. Here it talks about how people are are shaking their heads. And later on, he actually has to flee because his son's trying to kill him. I mean, his life was... There are things that he did that were awful. What's amazing is people feel bad for him in these verses. Not just because they know how bad his situation is and he's had to suffer and they shake their heads in pity. They also know how bad he really is. He doesn't deserve God's love. The scorn of men. They actually throw a Bible verse at him. (laughs) Verse 8, it's in quotations there. It quotes Psalm 37, 5. 
Psalm 37, 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will do this. That's probably a verse that David said often. And the people who were around him laughing at him said, <laughs> This guy trusts in God. I get it. Can you believe it? Let's see what he does. And David points to that. He says, Look, God, they're mocking me. But, look at verses 9 and 10. He talks about the faith from his birth. You brought me out of the womb. From birth I was cast upon you. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5. Uh, Paul talks about uh, how Timothy came to faith. And he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you. He points to the lineage of faith. David also points to his lineage of faith, and he remembers, you were with my grandfather and my father, and I believe you are with me. I've always wished I had a really cool testimony. Do you know what I mean? Where people would say, oh, I used to be... Be in jail, do lots of drugs, and then God save me. All right. We hear those, and it, that's the kind of testimony my dad has. I always wish I had a... I didn't. I don't. My testimony is different. Mine is, I was told about the gospel from the time I was a child. I messed up plenty. I made tons of mistakes. But God was faithful through them all, and he was with me. I never remember a day of not knowing about God's faithfulness. I had to commit my life. But I, I, don't, I don't remember not ever knowing about Jesus Christ. So many of us have that testimony. That's what David talks about here in verse 10. In verse 9. From the time he was a kid, he'd heard about this God who was always with him. And yet, look at verse 11 through 21. He, he cries for help. He talks, he gives metaphors of bulls, lions, dogs. Uh, the run of the bulls didn't exist then. But think about that. I mean, he just, he, he felt in despair. He was surrounded. He felt poured out. He felt fear. His heart was like wax. His strength was dried up. He uses the term, they divided his garments. Now, this is something that nobody divided David's garments. Nobody pierced his hands and feet. That's echoing something that will come later. But it shows the extent of how much he had suffered. But what's amazing is each of these sections of despair, verses 1 and 2, 6 and 8, and 12 to 18, are followed by affirmations of faith. There's this, there's this little phrase that he says in there, but you... For example, in verse 9 through 11, he talks about how he's a worm, but you, and, and it's almost like saying, but you cared for me, so I was a special worm at least. He feels some kind of care, even in the midst of this despair. And then in verse 21, look at it with me, where it says there, save me from the horns of the wild oxen. That verb is actually the same one in verse 2 that talks about answer. So it doesn't quite work in English for us to say, answer me from the horns of the wild oxen. It just doesn't quite have the same ring to it. But it's supposed to be sort of bookends, because after verse 21, everything changes. Instead of feeling like he's in the pits and absolutely, something changes. But what's amazing is his circumstances don't change. He's still surrounded. He's still in pain. He, but something in his heart changed. He realized who was with him. I think it's okay to complain sometimes, especially to God. Especially sometimes we feel abandoned. But what we notice is his prayer doesn't end there. It continues. Because when he thinks about who God is, he remembers that even in the midst of this difficulty, this difficulty is so small compared to the greatness of my God. Verses 22 to 25 is the response of prayer. He gives his testimony. Verse 22, he gives a personal testimony. He talks about how he will lead people 
uh, into, in, in, to praise. I will declare your name to my brothers. What is his response? His response is praise. Now, I'm going to get in trouble for this one. Love. Think about marriage. When you first tell someone you love them, that's, you know, you feel all warm inside. Googly, googly. Right? What is true love? Once you've been married to somebody for one, five, ten, forty-eight years, it's a decision. There are days you get up and you think, this is hard. Think about joy. Joy is not just happiness that you feel. It's a decision. It's in the midst of this difficult circumstance, I'm going to remember that I have things to be thankful for. That's one of the things that we talk about with our kids, especially in airports, especially late at night. What's something we can think to be thankful for? It's a decision. Praise here. His circumstances have not changed. But in 22, he's able to praise. And he leads others in praise. 23 to 24, he calls others. Let's praise. Let's glorify. Let's fear the Lord. It's amazing. He says, God did not hide his face from us. Think about the benediction at the end of the service. He remembers God did not hide his face. And in verse 26 to 31, it's beautiful. But he talks about the hope of heaven. He talks about the hope of the afflicted. Look at what it says. Their hearts will live forever. Their hearts will live forever. I used to, my parents used to say that heaven was going to be like a big long church service. I was like, I don't want to go. <laughs> We're going to be singing and praying and praising. I thought, no, not for me. I mean, don't get me wrong, I like church, clearly. But, uh, Eternity? But here's the thing. When we realize that our purpose is for God, think about your business, if you're a businessman. The purpose of your business is not just to make money so you can have a big house and a big car and retire comfortably and go to the Bahamas. The purpose of you working, what if the purpose of you working is to share the gospel? What if the purpose of your working is to show people what integrity is and what character is and to show, what to show your co-workers what it looks like to live a life for Christ and, and, and to, to be part of a church and to be a businessman who, who helps make decisions for the community so they can point them towards a God, and a God who loves them? What if that was the purpose of your business? To help the community around you? What if? What if as a teacher, your job wasn't just to make lesson plans and and, and get at least 50% of the kids out of here without failing, right? What if the purpose was to, to talk with that child who, whose parents are going through a divorce or, 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 or who's struggling with bulimia? I mean, what if your purpose as a teacher was to walk alongside those children, not just through geometry, but through life? What if? Our purpose... And, and we can't do that if we rest on our own strength, if we, if we try to uh, just really hard try to help others. The purpose of helping others, that cannot help happen unless I have communion with God. I cannot have good communion with other people unless I have a good communion with God. Our purpose is to worship God, yes, in singing, but in what we do, and how you run your business, and how you're a teacher, and how you live life, and how you parent. So all of a sudden, every little thing is worship. Work is worship. Conversation is worship. The way you drive, the way I drive isn't. It should be. Right? Daily communion with God. All of a sudden, if, if our hearts will live forever like that, I could, I could put up with that. I would love that, in fact. 
The time I look forward to every day is that quiet time in the morning. It gets shorter and shorter every time because caveman gets up earlier and earlier. Uh, where I can just read and pray and just think. Sometimes write. We are made for our creator. The hope of heaven. And if that's our hope, think about years before Jesus had died and rose again. He recognizes the hope that we have is the resurrection, that we will live forever. This isn't all there is. So in the midst of that despair, in the midst of everything seeming to go wrong, we have hope that there's something to come. Look at verses 27 and 29. This is beautiful. It talks about the hope of nations. Now, when, in Genesis chapter, chapter 12, uh, God had told Abraham, I will bless you to be a blessing to the nations, to people all around you. But they kind of became inward focused, if you look through the history of Israel. And, and, and so when Christ comes, I mean, if you look through the Old Testament, there were constantly Rahab, Ruth, Uzziah. There were plenty of people who were strangers who came to know Christ, but they hadn't been the, the blessing to others that one would hope. Psalm 45, the psalmist says, I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Isaiah 60 talks about how one day all the nations will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's hilarious because in 1776, there's a book called Wealth of Nations that was written. Uh, by Adam Smith. Uh, and, and it was a reflection of the American economy. It's really it's a good book. Go read it sometime. Uh, but it transformed the way the world understood free market economy. And it quotes Isaiah. That phrase, the wealth of nations, pops up in Isaiah six times. Now, his idea is that all, you know, the, the American economy can be a benefit to others. But what is the true blessing that the United States of America and other countries can give to the nations? Think about it for just a second. What's the blessing your family can give to the nations? Things are great. A good market where you can support your family is great. It's so necessary. What about the hope of heaven? What if your child, your grandchild, becomes somebody who shares the gospel? Have you ever prayed that? your children, your grandchildren? Verse 29 here talks about those who have died will worship God, those who could not preserve their life. And Job, he, he, he's lost everything. He's lost his camels, he's lost his family, he's lost his house. And in Job 13, 15, he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Habakkuk chapter 3, I preached this, I think it was September, I don't expect you to remember. Don't worry, no test. But at the very end of Habakkuk, he talks about how even if I lose all of my things, yet will I trust in the Lord, my God, my Savior. This man, John, that I told you guys about that was on the motorcycle with his dad and got threatened, he is looking to start a school in that same town because there's only one school and it's so corrupt that some of the teachers, the teachers show up drunk to teach. Uh, they've abused some of the students. I don't just mean physically. So he's going to start a school in that town for the kids. He could have run. He could have gone to Spain. He'd, he has every excuse to go. The gospel compels him. This other man that I told you about that prayed for 15 years, an organization here from the United States, uh, ended up funding one of the farms, just one farm, to transfer it from cocaine to coffee. That farmer did so well that 30 people showed up to his church and said, we want to do the exact same thing. He prayed for 10 years. God answered his prayer through coffee company called Redeeming Grounds. Thank goodness for hipsters who like to drink uh, expensive cups of coffee, right? It's amazing how God used those. 
Romans 8 said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's amazing. Verse 26 and 29 talk about that hope, not just of the life, but in the life to come. And yes, God redeemed those stories, and it's beautiful to see what's, what's happened there, but our hope is not just in this life. And look at verse 30 and 31, and one in there. He talks about the hope of future generations. Our primary prayer should be for our children. But also think about you. Why are you here? It's because somebody prayed for you. I was your father, your grandfather, your great. We have a lineage of faith, a long line of people who have prayed for us, eagerly wanting for us to know the Savior. But what's amazing, if you look at that very last couple of verses, where it says posterity there in verse 30, actually the word there in the Hebrew is seed. A seed will serve him. Future generations will know about him. That word seed appears in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 15. Right when Adam and Eve sinned, right away when they sinned, God gives a promise. He says, a seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Pointing to the day when Christ would come and defeat death and defeat Satan. It's referring to that. And I firmly believe that even just with that reference, it's talking about when Christ would come. And the gospel shows who this seed was. What's amazing is David felt forsaken and alone. But he also points to the praise of God and the hope of heaven. What's amazing, this same psalm is in Mark. What we just read in Mark 15 and 16. Christ felt forsaken. He cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His hands and his feet were pierced, like it says in this psalm. They cast lots for his clothes, like it says in this psalm. They shook their heads and mocked him, like it says in this psalm. Mark 15 says, Come down from the cross and save yourself, they told him. He was forsaken so that you and I would never be. He felt this depth of despair so you and I would know God will never leave you, never forsake you, even if you feel like it. So David was able to pray through it and God transformed him through the prayer. Jesus was able to pray through it and through it transform our prayers. Today, if we feel forsaken, we can cry out to God and know that God responds because of who he is, regardless of what country we're in. Even in Colombia, he hears my prayers. Crazy, right? Those, those people I talked to you about, that, that man, John, that other pastor, um, there's, there's, another, uh, there's another group of people that have started a jail ministry. They used to be assassins. Uh, there's a show on Netflix, I won't say the name, but it, talks, it shows a lot of the assassins that were, that were present in the city where we are. There's about 25 of them that became Christians, and now they're doing a jail ministry. They went to jail, got out, and now they're ministering in jails. Over 170 jails throughout the country uh, have regular church services every other day because of these guys that used to be assassins. One of the things the seminary is trying to do, uh, imagine that same guy, that same group that beat up uh, that, guy's, that guy's dad and put a gun to the mom's head. Imagine if that group came and sat next to him in church. How would he feel? What would he do? What would you do if that was you? Would you get up and walk away? Just duck the guy in the face. Think about it. Really, really think about it. What would you do? That is the reality that the church in Columbia has to wrestle with. In the next 10 years, there's a peace process that it's happening, and these, these guerrillas are going to be reintegrated in society. What are the pastors? What are the church members? What are the church elders? What are the deacons? What is our Sunday school teacher going to do? Those people walk through those doors. 
They want, to be, they want to come back into society. But what are we going to do? What does forgiveness teach to the church? So I would ask you, this, 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 one of the reasons I've thought about this psalm is because I think this is how many people feel today in Colombia. After conversations with some of you, there's a couple of you that are going through some really, really tough times. This is how some of us feel. But the hope of heaven does not go away. I would ask you, continue to pray for our ministry. I don't have the answer. How do I encourage these pastors with, through forgiveness? And what does that look like? Um, how does our family help bring reconciliation with other families to be a blessing? But the reality is, because of Christ, because of his resurrection, as we see here, because of the hope of heaven, we can live today in the midst of these difficult circumstances because he has promised never to leave us and never to forsake us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us. God, I pray that you would please continue to bless Clover ARP Church. Thank you for the blessing they've been to us. But I pray that you would continue to hold us close, even in the midst of these difficult circumstances, O oh God. Thank you that you don't just make the problems go away. Instead, you promise to be with us through the problems. I pray that we would be able to share the gospel with those who have been oppressors. But I also pray that you would help us to be mediums of reconciliation. I don't know how, but I believe that through your church, you've done miracles in the past, and we pray that you would do a miracle in this society now. God, we thank you for your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.